We are in James, James chapter 1 still, but James nonetheless. Um, <clears throat> it was fun preaching last week, and a number of people came up to me and said, I'd never heard that before. And I just thought, wow, I want to go into the five sola and just keep going, but maybe next year, okay? Right now we're in James, and the last time that we were together before Reformation Sunday, we looked at James uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, and started talking a little bit about temptation and trial. I'd like to read uh, those verses for you, 13 through 15, and just by way of review to get us back up running with James. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Let's pray before we get started and just commit our time into the Lord's hands. Father, uh, as we come into this area of talking about testing and temptation and enduring testing and not letting it become a temptation to sin, I pray, Father, that we would take this home to our own hearts because we face this every single day, Lord, as believers. We are not yet perfected. We are not yet glorified. And Father, so we struggle. We struggle with the testing that you allow into our lives to approve us as your children. And Lord, we also struggle with the temptation that we sometimes fall to because of our own lusts. We pray, Father, that you open the eyes of our understanding that we'd be able to see these truths and then that you would enable our wills to accept them and deal with the sin that comes into our life, the temptations, the testing, and that we'll be able to know the difference between them. Thank you for hearing our prayers now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked in those few verses the last time we were together about the source of temptation. And let me just say at the outset, temptation does not come from God. It does not come from God. And you say, well, yeah, I, the Scripture says that and everything, but how many times have you heard someone say, why is God doing this? Right? Why is God doing this to me? As though God is the source of temptation. He is not the source of temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. Should just never even say it. Why? Because God cannot be tempted by evil. The word translated into English as cannot be tempted is instructive here, and it's only used once in the Bible, and that's right here. And what it actually means is untemptable, untemptable, or without a capacity to be tempted. He cannot be tempted. The Bible clearly teaches that God is holy and that he is without sin. Isaiah 6, you're all familiar with Isaiah 6 if you've read your Bibles much. And the thrice holy God, three times the seraphim declare that he is holy. 
in Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Hebrews 7.26 is another text. The Lord is described as holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And wrap it up with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 24, where Christ, it is said, has left us an example who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now today, I'll be talking about deceit a little bit when we get to the new material. But don't let it ever be said that God is tempting you with evil because he cannot, and he does not. Where does temptation come? Well, James is very straightforward. He, 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 <laughs> there's not a whole lot of frill with James. What you see is what you get. It's almost like reading First John, very black and white. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Ouch. Ouch. That is personal responsibility, something that we don't think much about these days. It's everybody else's fault, right? It's always shoveled over. That little word carried away, or that phrase carried away, was used to describe how bait was laid out for an animal to be caught. There was a lure set that was so intense as to literally drag out the beast from the protective covering of brush or cave. So consider a lion in a cave, and you throw a nice, big, fat, juicy piece of meat in front of the cave that he could smell to draw him out. It's also used with fishermen, how they lure fish away from the rest and onto their hook. The important thing to remember when considering both terms or this being carried away by our own lust is the allurement that is being emphasized here, the attractiveness of the bait and not the consequence. Not the consequence. The consequence is overshadowed by the attractiveness of the lure. And then it says it's by his own lust. You can replace that word lust with desire, if you will. Here's the real culprit. Here is the real source of temptation. It is the individual's desires or lust, not the testing allowed by God. Now listen to me here, because maybe when I was talking about God uh, being untestable, okay, that you cannot test God with evil, you might be thinking of Jesus in Matthew 4 where he was put to a test. That was not a temptation to evil. That was a test which approved him as the God-man. That was a good thing. That was not an evil thing. It's individual lust, not the testing allowed by God or even the testing by somebody else, but it's our own lust deep from within us that latches onto the allurement. This is why we call out, oh, wretched man that I am, right? Why we struggle with our sin, why we long to be in heaven is because there we know there will no longer be this temptation, this allurement to something that's innate within us. It's a sin that remains within us. Temptation has its source not in the external lure, but through the inner lust within the heart of every human being. This is the wrong 
inner response to the testing of our faith. And this is where testing turns into temptation. Please understand the difference between testing, which is to approve us, which is a good thing, and temptation, which is to drag us down into sin. Temptation is an inducement to sin, but testing is directed to approval and to show us that we have the inner grace to say no to sin. You need to recognize the difference between testing and tempting, and if you want to be adventuresome, you can look at your entire life as battling these things. Literally, every day we're tested. But that test can easily devolve into a temptation depending on how spiritually fit we are. So be careful. God may allow, and he does allow us, to face trials and testings of our faith. But it is our own inner response towards those testings that turns negative and takes the testing and then turns it into a temptation to evil. It's not God. It's a lust that is within us. Testing is directed to that approval. Temptation is an inducement to sin. So God allows the trials in which temptation to sin can occur, but they don't have to occur. And it's not to solicit believers to sin because that would mean that God is tempting us to do evil. But it is to move believers to a greater endurance. Think of the exercise-er, okay, which I am not. But I have done it in the past. And I'm the kind of guy that, you know, what, 15 pounds? Are you kidding me? Give me 25. And I just go for it, right? And for the next three days, I can't put my T-shirts on. Any of you guys work out? You know what that's like when you just break into it. I always overdo it, and then I quit, and that's it. And then, you know, a couple years later, I'll try it again. And... But if I was wise and listened to a coach or somebody, he'd tell me, start with 10 pounds. Lenetti, work it slow. Do a couple reps, 10 reps, 20 reps, whatever, and build up. By the end of the month, you will be up to 25 pounds. You'll be fine. And then you go to the bar, and it'll be even more. I just don't operate like that. But that's the way it is with these testings as well. When you're tested and you overcome a a testing and, and you're victorious and you don't devolve into a temptation and you commit sin, which you have to confess and then repent from, when you win over that testing and you stand approved, that strengthens you. You have endured the test. And that's what they're for, not to bring us down, but to create a greater endurance within us for these things. So, the source of temptation can never be attributed to God. Don't do that. Now, here's the process that temptation takes, and we discussed this when we were talking on this a couple weeks ago. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Verse 15. There's a process that takes place as the testing devolves into temptation. Temptation into sin, and then sin leads to death. Conceived. Okay? Conceived. The temptation itself is not sin. I think it was Luther that said, you know, uh, a bird can fly all around your head and, and ruffle your hair and everything, and that's like temptation. That's not sin. 
But if you let the bird make a nest on your head, that's sin. Kind of a wacky way of thinking about it, but think about it, right? Um, You men, a beautiful woman walks past you. You take note of that woman and you look away. You just want, you are enduring the test, okay? You stare at the woman. You think about the woman. That is falling to the temptation then by the own lust within your heart that draws you away from what you know you should be doing. It can be that way with food. It can be that way with anything, right? Discipline in our children. You start off very calm. Johnny, don't do that. It's not, I don't want you to do that. Johnny, I said, don't do that. Johnny, for crying out loud. A simple little test has turned into a temptation and anger just comes up out of your breast. Where does that come from? You started well. Well, it comes from your own lusts within you, your own desires within you. What would the desire be with little Johnny? Peace and quiet, right? It's self-motivated. And little Johnny's disturbing my sanctimonious harmony here. And then I sin. So you understand how this testing, which we face many times every day, can actually be for our good and for approval, but it can devolve into temptation. Conceived. Even the initial sense of being drawn toward the desired object, thought, or action is not sin. The initial being drawn, but when it is indulged, when the urge is conceived, when it's surrendered to and cultivated, when the will agrees with the craving, when the will agrees with the craving, then an unholy union is formed between the illicit desire and the surrendered will. Will's got an awful lot to do with this. This is another thing we don't hear a lot about today, is that you have a will. You don't operate just on the way you feel. You actually can go against your feelings and activate your will. You have volition. It's a gift from God. So when sin is conceived, it says it gives birth, or when the temptation, excuse me, when sin is conceived, gives birth to sin when there is conception. When there is conception, it leads to birth naturally unless it's interrupted. Okay? Unless it's interrupted. Sin is born of lust indulged. Sin is born of lust indulged. The third step is when sin is accomplished then. The next step, and and this is when it's birthed, it is committed, accomplished. Apoteleo, it's the same word from where we get, it is finished, that Christ said on the cross. This process has been completed now, and the sin has been committed it's accomplished. The term means that it is fully done. It has come to completion. And when that takes place, it can lead to death. And you say, whoa, wait a second. What are you talking about? Well, if you were in a sermon or you listened to that sermon, I said that death always, in, a, in the Bible, it always means separation. Always. And you have physical death where the soul separates from the human body, the physical body. That's physical death. There is spiritual death. Uh, All of us are born separate from God. That's spiritual death. And then you also have what's called eternal death. That is separation forever of the soul from God. When 
in spiritual death, the soul is separated from God. It's through regeneration that that union is once again experienced with God. Through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, and by virtue of believing that and accepting that, then we have fellowship with God again through Jesus Christ, and so we're no longer spiritually dead. Prior to that, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Well, I know a lot of people that have not believed in Christ and they're walking around. What's it mean, dead in trespasses and sin? That's spiritual death. That's a separation of the soul from God, the source of spiritual life. And then the third uh, area of separation is eternal death. That is when you die physically and the soul is separate from the body, but that soul is still separated from God because they were never regenerate, then they will experience a second death called eternal death in the book of Revelation. So what death is this talking about? And if you would just take a simple process of elimination, the death that James is speaking of must mean physical death as alluded to in 1 Corinthians 11.30 when Paul was teaching the Corinthians about their taking the Lord's table unworthily. And he says this, For this reason... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's a euphemism for have died. Yes, God will actually take some of his saints home, and it's a preservation of them, and he does that. Uh, Also in 1 John 5.16, it's clear that a believer can commit sin, which leads to physical death. So it can't mean eternal death, because if you're a believer, there's no way you're going to be separate from God. Look at Romans chapter 8. There's nothing that can separate us from God. And it, it's surely not uh, talking about, about eternal death. How could that be? Every time you sin, then you face eternal death. It just doesn't work. So it's got to be physical death. There is a process involved here where the believer who sins, if they persist in it, in unrepentant behavior, the sin may lead to their physical death. But that presupposes that no interruption has taken place, no confession, no repentance. So, that is just covering verses 13 through 15 very quickly. Now verses 16 through 18, I'd like to read. Do not be deceived, my beloved. And it's very interesting that he just has that verse right there, right in the middle of things. Every good gift given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that he would be, uh, we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, I'm not going to get to verse 18 today. There is no possible way. But we will cover that next week, and that's all about regeneration. And it's marvelous. It's phenomenal. But isn't it kind of weird? I mean... If you're just reading this through and you come to verse 16 after all that talk about temptation and trial and everything, you're like, what? What? Why did he just drop that in there? Now, verse 16 is troubling enough. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. What's that about? But the next verse is even more troubling. It's kind of like New Age-ish, you know? Every good thing 
and given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Ooh, what is this? Okay, well, you've got to keep the whole context in place here. James is teaching his readers how to deal with temptation, how to deal with trials and testings. And the problem was that some people were blaming God for those things, and that's what he's referring to in verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't go there. Okay? And so then he is explaining something about God and about how he can't be the purveyor of temptation. Deceived, planao, means to cause to stray, to lead away, to wander, or to roam away. Often it's used of someone deceiving another person, but it can also be self-inflicted, self-deception. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. When you're hanging around with people of questionable morals, even though you may be a believer, that bad company can affect your morals. And so the call there in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 is not to deceive yourself and think, you got it, it's okay, I can hang with these people. It will have an effect on you, Scripture is saying, and you will be deceiving yourself if you think it won't. Over in Galatians 6, 7, it says, Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that he will also reap. Well, there can be self-deception in carrying on in such behavior, thinking not of the consequences, but just the enjoyment of the behavior, and thinking there is no consequence. That would be to deceive yourself because God will not be mocked. There is a consequence to behavior. You see how that works? Now, verse 16 is kind of a pivotal. You can either go backwards or you can go forward with verse 16 in deception. It's a warning that can relate to what immediately precedes it, verses 13 through 15, or it can be relating to verses 17 through 18. In the former, where James warns the believer about the source and consequence of sin... He's saying, don't blame God for temptation and sin. Don't be deceived and think that God is the one that's bringing about this temptation. He's just back on the same theme, okay? Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted of God. He himself does not tempt anyone. Rather, James taught, take personal responsibility for it because it's from your own lusts. We know that. We just went through that. But if it's the latter view taken, then verse 16 is linked with what follows in verses 17 through 19, or 17 through 18. Every good gift given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So how can it be relating to that? Well, don't be deceived and pick up a false view of God. Don't think of God in a wrong way here being suspicious of his character because the true character of God is that he is good. He is all good. In fact, the source of all and every good gift comes from God, the source of all good. Remember Eve. Eve said, hath God said? Remember that temptation in the garden. Hath God said? 
The, the serpent said that to Eve, and then Eve comes back with her answer, and the serpent comes back with what Eve's allurement, her lust, grabbed hold of. For God knows, the serpent said, that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. And then she took and ate of it, right? She was lured to that, and it says she was definitely deceived, most certainly deceived. So, you see how this verse 16, this deception, can go either way. Let's look at verses 13 through 15 and how it can point to that. The potential for deception is there. The source of temptation is not from God, but rather the lust within each one of us. I want you to understand that sin dwells within us. Though we're saved, this is a proverbial question, why do Christians sin? Because we are not yet perfected. We are not yet glorified. We are in the process of sanctification, beloved. And so we battle against sin. Well, what sin? Well, the sin that we're tempted to do by the devil, by the world around us that is a a sin-cursed world, and by what remains within us. I call it the harmatiological hangover, okay? We have a sin hangover. Even though we've been brought into the light, our tail is still kind of in the dark there. And so consequently, that's where those lusts and those desires come from, but they're going to be gone when we're to heaven. Why? Because we no longer have these mortal bodies. Now, I can't get into all the ins and outs and all the definitions and all the intricacies of indwelling sin, but believe me, it's there. A lot of people call it the old nature. I don't like that because I've been told in Romans 6 that I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I'm a new creature. So I don't like that old nature, but there is definitely something in there that goes towards those allurements. I call it the sin that remains within us, the sin that dwells within us. And it's, it's strong, beloved. And that's where this, this deceitfulness comes in. Can I tell you something? Sin is really deceitful. It's really deceitful. Its primary characteristic is deception. Ephesians 4.22 speaks of the old man or the one that is not yet a believer, and it says that they are filled with corruption, corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Deceitful lusts within them, 4.22. In Titus 3.3, it paints a bleak picture of life of the unsaved person. Quote, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, this is pre-Christ, deceived, how were we deceived? Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's the deception. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, but evil men and imposters, those who might claim one thing but live differently, they'll, re- they'll proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14 shows deception to have preceded Eve's disobedience, as I mentioned in the fall. But the woman, being quite deceived, fell into temptation and transgression. What's a cure to this deception? This deception that sin brings with it that is so prevalent everywhere. 2 Corinthians 11.3, I believe, gives us the answer where Paul warned about the deception of Eve and says that it's devotion to Christ that is the antidote 
to that kind of deception. The verse says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the single-mindedness, the simplicity, the single-mindedness, the devotion and the purity and devotion to Christ. So the devotion to Christ is a safeguard against the deception of sin. In plain terms, a person who is deceived often does not even know that they are being deceived. And this is a deadly effect of sin in a life. Sin so alters thinking that the sinner doesn't even realize when they are doing and what they are doing is sinful because the sin itself deceives them. And then you have willful sin or haughty sin, if you will, a haughty spirit that deceives itself because it wants to sin. It wants to indulge those desires. The phrase deceitfulness of sin appears only once in the Bible in Hebrews 3.13, another one offer. It says this, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's frightening. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is someone that's given into that sin, indulging that sin. Now their heart begins to harden. And they don't want to let go of that sin. And that's the deceitfulness of sin has come about to harden their hearts. Sin is deceitful because it appears fair, but it's filthy. It appears pleasant, but it's pernicious. And it promises much, but performs nothing. Thank you, Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, beautiful. Sin is deceitful because it appears fair, but it's filthy. It appears pleasant, but it's pernicious. It promises much. Oh, doesn't it, though? That's all those things that our desires look at and not the consequence. It promises much, but performs nothing. Clouds without water, right? Well, if as shown above, our fallen humanity is prone to allow our affections, our feelings, our emotions, first place in our lives. Is there anybody here that would disagree with that? That we have a propensity to live by our emotions, by the way we feel? I mean, just think the last time you didn't do something because you didn't feel like doing it and regret it the next day that you didn't do it because you still have to do it, but you didn't do it because you didn't feel like doing it, right? That is your emotions completely dominating you and controlling you instead of your will. So our fallen humanity is prone to allow our emotions first place in our lives, and then our thoughts follow those emotions, and then our will chooses according to those influences. And the only answer to that dilemma is to reestablish the place of reason in your life. Start thinking. Quit feeling. <laughs> I mean, I don't want you to be emotionless, but we could do with a lot less emotion. Let your mind reason things out and act according to facts. Then you will do what you know to be true, regardless of the way that you feel. That's huge. We need to reestablish the place of reason in our lives. Remember, it, it must be about five years now, Almost six years ago, 
I was sitting in a class um, in some studies that I was doing at the time, and and uh, the prof came in. He happened to be the, um, I think he was probably the vice president of the seminary, and he said, this is the first year coming up. It was July, I think, and they were looking at the fall, and he said, this is the first year coming up where our student body, if all the statistics are true, it'll be the first year that our student body is coming in where they have not read a, a complete book. Okay? They have not read a complete book. People, put your devices down. Please, put your devices down. The Bible talks a lot about the new man and the old man. And Romans 12, 2 is very clear that the new man is being transformed. Passive voice. This is happening to us if we are believers, according to the renewing of our mind. Now, the study of the truth in God's Word is imperative in the struggle against temptation and sin. Back to my topic at hand here. This is how we fight against this stuff. And there's three practical steps when dealing with temptation. Let me give them to you very simply. Okay, one is knowing God. The second one is feeding yourselves consistently from God's Word. And the third one is know yourself. Okay? This is the way that you can battle against temptation in your life. Know God. Discover the character and nature of God through His self-revelation in the Bible. Daniel 11.32 tells us real clearly that people who know God will display strength and take action. I like that. Run to the fight. Run to the action. Okay, volition. You're in control, not your feelings. The people who know God will display strength. They'll be strong, and they'll take action. Reading books on the attributes of God will provide you with serious strength when facing temptation. Let me give you a name of a couple of books, okay? You can go back and listen to them, and I'll go through them rather rapidly, but... The Attributes of God can be found in Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Simple little book. Not so simple to read. It's a little dense, but it's good. Knowing God. The Attributes of God can be found in A.W. Pink's book by that same title, The Attributes of God. It's smaller and much more compact. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy any of these books, get it and read it. They should be on your shelves. They really should. These are classics that every believer should really read and be aware of. Now, if you want to delve down, and I mean down, Stephen Charnock's The Existence and Attributes of God. Two-volume set, terribly dense, no pictures at all. (laughs) None. But well, he's a Puritan, so he's very wordy, but he spends 146 pages, 146, that's a typical book, right? This is just part of his volumes, 146 pages on the goodness of God. Listen, you're feeling a little depressed, you're feeling a little bit down, pick up that volume and read the 146 pages on the goodness of God. Every time I read Charnock, and I have him, I have not read him from cover to cover, Okay? Too dense. I'd have to take a sabbatical to do that. But every time I read him, once I hunker down, and that's usually about 15 to 20 minutes before I get in the flow with this thinking, I am brought to heaven. I am brought into such worship. That man, <laughs> anointed, 
just amazing writer and just very familiar with the God that he's writing about. So he's an excellent one, the existence and attributes of God, but I wish somebody would come out with a 21st century version of those that would go through that work and get that into the hands of people that could grab hold of it. Any good systematic theology book is also good and look up the attributes of God. The best systematic theology book I think out is Biblical Doctrine. It's brand new. Biblical Doctrine. And uh, you could also pick up Hodges, uh, Systematic Theology, Burkhoff, Wayne Grudem. Um, Just look up attributes of God in the systematic theology. And another thing that you can do is read about one specific attribute of God. Uh, like The Holiness of God by uh, R.C. Sproul, or A.W. Pink's The Sovereignty of God, or John MacArthur's The Love of God. They focus on just one attribute. Now, why am I saying this? Because I said to know God and his attributes, to know who he is, will help you when you're facing temptation. It will prepare and, and protect you from blaming God for bringing that temptation to you. Understanding God's attributes will give you a firm footing when you encounter trials. Secondly, second step, feed yourselves consistently with the things of God, not the things of the world. Remember how Jesus dealt with temptation in the wilderness. He used the word of God. Man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You know, there are a lot of good self-help books in the self-help section, but that's, they're just words. They're like the bread that Jesus was referring to. They're not every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. These words in this book are very, very important, and you can't just um, talk about them. You need to read them and know these words. Renew your minds, Ephesians 4.24 Colossians 3.10 and Romans 12.2. Re-establish reason for feelings. Exchange reason in place of feelings so that you're basing your behavior on facts rather than on feelings, okay? Third step, know yourself. This is important. Identify key situations and circumstances where you've fallen to temptation in the past. This takes some time. You have to actually disengage a bit. Go someplace where it's quiet. Think. What was going on in your life? Self-evaluate. Contemplate. If I can use that word without getting crucified, it's been hijacked by contemplation. Prayer, I can't even say it. Contemplative prayer. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just sit down and think about things, okay? Contemplate yourself. Examine your life. Stop long enough to really take stock. What happened there when you fell to that temptation? Here's a couple of crucial times when we fall prey to temptation, okay? You may have heard of this. Good. If you have, if you haven't, jot them down. There's three areas that I think that are just make us so prone to temptation. And that is not handling the testing well, but giving in to the temptation and committing sin. When we're successful, when we're fatigued, terribly tired, and when we're overconfident. 
okay? Times of success, uh, when everything's going well and, and, and maybe you've just had a long, hard battle and you've actually gained the ascendancy, you won the battle. Look out. Look out, okay? You tend to let your guard down at times like that. When things are going very, very smooth, Proverbs 132 says the complacency of fools will destroy them. Wow. <laughs> you see what I mean about the words, the very words of God contained in his book? The complacency of fools will destroy them. How about Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9? Keep deception and lies far from me, the writer says. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Just wants to be even, healed. Feed me with food that is my portion, that I am not full and deny you. He understood that you get to a point of satisfaction, you let go, you let back, you give up, and you just kind of coast because everything's going okay. You're not on your guard. Lest I be full and deny you. And then Hosea 13.6 says, As they had pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. And therefore, they forgot there's a process. Did you hear it? They got what they needed, pasture, and they became satisfied. And once they became satisfied, they became proud. And when they became proud, they forgot God. Luke 12, 19 talks about the rich fool, right? Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Let up. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Success can be really a time for deep sin coming into your life. Times of success and satisfaction with your life can be fertile soil for the temptation of sin. Beware of those times. Times of extreme fatigue, something none of us know anything about here. Extreme fatigue. Oh, gosh. Thank you, Lord, for the strength to just not go where I was going to go. When zeal for the Lord is low, physical, emotionally, spiritual energy are greatly depleted. You're drained. You're feeling very, very drained. Man, lock yourself in a room with no devices, okay? Just lock yourself away. Elijah had just gone through his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, right? And he won. Great victory. And this is a combination of success and extreme fatigue uh, caused by inordinate fear. Because the prophet had that win, and then Jezebel, the queen, said, you know, be it unto me also if I don't kill you the same way you killed those prophets. And he became afraid, and he ran away. He ran from her. After this huge success, he ran from her. And it says in 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4, it says, And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which uh, belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he just might die. And he said, it's enough now, O oh Lord, take my life. <laughs> what a sad 
sad place for this prophet who was just victorious to be in. But he was worn out and filled with fear. We see further deception. He was deceived. He was obviously deceived. If he really wanted to die, all he would have had to do is stand still. Right? Jezebel said, I'll take you out. He didn't need to run. She would have done it for him. So he's deceived. And we see further deception because in verses, or in chapter 20, verses 10 and 14, he rehearses, you can tell he's rehearsed this over and over in his mind. He says, oh, I alone am left, Lord, and they seek my life to take it away. He says it twice. So you know it's just going around the track in his mind, which isn't a true statement either because God corrected him and said, actually, in verse 18, you're not the only one left. There are over 700 who will serve me. You know, when you're tempted, remember that no temptation that overtakes you is unique, like you're the only person that's ever experienced this. Don't be like this prophet here. He was deceived. He was not the only one. There were 7,000 other ones, but he felt like he was the only one. See those feelings coming in again? And this is hard. This is why it's good to have fellowship or to have a, a, a spouse that's a true believer that will talk into your life and not afraid to talk into your life and say, what's up, buckaroo? You're really down here. Let's pray. Let's go to the Word. We call it truthing one another, right? You truth one another. You speak the truth into the other's life. And friends can do that with friends, too. And you help them. You see, no temptation is common, uh, is, is, is overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow, listen to this promise, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, the testing, okay, with the testing, he will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it Endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. So you got success and you got fatigue or them together, right? Last one, time of overconfidence. When you think you're more highly of yourself than you ought or your spirituality than you ought, the I got this attitude, right? I got this. I got it. Peter did that. In Mark 14, 19, you remember, it was at the Last Supper. He was talking with Jesus. Jesus was talking and telling him what was going to come about, the disciples. And Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. But Peter kept on saying insistently, he kept on saying insistently, you think he had the attitude of, I got this? Insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Lord, Peter. Paul warned of this in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. James 4, 6 reminds us, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, here's a thought, and this is the joy of doing what I get to do every week in preparation for these sermons. This thought just came to me as I'm reading these over, this overconfidence thing and everything, and are you struggling with a besetting sin that you just can't seem to get the victory over? 
You know, some of us, we have times in our lives like that that something just overwhelms us. We just feel like we have no control. Perhaps it's your pride that prevents God from providing an enabling grace necessary to overcome the sin. Hit me just like, bam. Pride can prevent us from that enabling grace that God wants to give us to overcome the sin because he opposes the proud. Well, Peter told us, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that, interesting, isn't it? So that, purpose clause, so that he may exalt you at the right time. Maybe that, that victory over that besetting sin that's bothering you is right there ready, and he's ready to deliver you, but you're so proud he can't enable you to get over it. And so you need to go to school a little bit longer, suffer a little bit more with your own pride until you humble yourself. And then he pours open his gates And you recognize, I can't do this on my own. When we boil it all down, though, the main point, James' statement, verse 17, God, rather than being a source of temptation, is a source of all that is good and perfect. Here's the true character of God. Don't be deceived into thinking he's an ogre. Don't be deceived into thinking that he is putting temptations in front of you just to trip you up. Some people think of God like that. I just... I was over in Germany, I was preaching to a group of men, and I, I mentioned this, this concept, and all of them were just going, just nodding their head. I think it's a human frailty that we have to view him as different than he is. Every good gift given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the source of all good because he is good. He is good. Maybe taking time to read Charnock's work in those 146 pages might convince you that he's good. If you struggle with your view of God, get that volume. He, 146 pages. I, I haven't read that, incidentally, but it's marked now in my volume, so I will go and read it. He is the only source of all that is good and perfect. And it comes from above, not below. Further on in James, he talks about wisdom from above, which is first pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And he compares it to earthly wisdom or wisdom from below, which is natural and demonic, and it's filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I told you, this guy's meat and potatoes, black and white. There is no... no Nuance here. You either have wisdom from above or earthly wisdom. And he warns against that earthly wisdom. It's arrogant and dishonest. So when God gives something, it is inherently good because of its source. The giver himself is good. He's a father, the father of lights. This is where I said, ooh. But really, it's a, it's a he's writing... To Jews, it's one of the first books written, and he's still very much Jewish in his mindset, and this was a, 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 a title for God that pictures him as a creator, the one who created lights. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And on the fourth day, God said, let there be lights or luminaries in the expanse of the heavens 
to separate the day from the night, and the Jews extolled him for that. He was a light bringer, okay? And so we see him as the father of lights, but he's also designated as a father. Don't miss that. He's not some distant deity way out there that we have no relationship with. And finally, he is unchanging, immutable. Oh, this is so, so necessary. Taking off on his reference to God as a creator, James assures his readers of the unchangeableness of God. Consider a time in your life, believer, I'm talking to believers, when God was so close to you where everything was just really working out. You'd read the scriptures and verses jumping off the pages at you. And you're so enthusiastically spiritual, you go to work and you share it with unbelievers, what you're reading from your devotions. And, and everything's going well, right? Now consider when you're depressed. The bottom's dropped out. Lost your job. Your car broke down. Your dog ran away. Whatever, okay? It's bad, really bad. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. He's that same God when you were on top of the world. He's the same God. That's what it means when it says that he's unchanging, he's immutable. Knowing God is more than theological studies. Remember, I'm still on that third point of knowing God. Knowing God is so important. And knowing his attributes, it helps us when temptation comes because it is that point, at that point when you have to activate your faith in what you know to be true, not what you're feeling. You have faith in facts. David displays this godly behavior in the Psalms. How many times do we see a psalm that starts out with him saying stuff like, Oh, woe is me. Why have you rejected me, Lord? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemies? And, and what are, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And he's just like underneath his shoes. He's just depressed. But by the end of the psalm, he's saying, Hope in God, for I will again praise him, my help and my countenance and my God. How does he do that? He activates his reason. He gets out from underneath his feelings, because he really felt that way, and he activates his reason based on the truth of God's word, and he says, he is God. I will yet again praise him. He is God. Well, there's great testing coming for many of us. And if it hasn't hit you yet, it's coming. Some will be with our jobs, some with relationships that we're in. Others will face illness that they weren't anticipating. Let these trials remain testings. Don't allow them to become temptations to sin. Guard yourself against that. Take them as testings to approve you. Turn to God. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Right? And recite back to yourself his attributes and believe him to be your father. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. You have to talk to yourself over and over and over again to remind yourself. Why? Because of the propensity within us, which is the sin that remains within us. Don't give in to that. Don't let that take its for and run you. And you'll find peace and joy again even if you endure the testing until it's over. You will find it. I can guarantee that. So let's stop with that, and next week come back for 
some great teaching on regeneration. I can hardly wait to do that. In fact, I usually start on Tuesday. I'm going to start when I get home. It's just, it's, it's too good. So let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you feed us and encourage us. It is sustenance to our souls. Lord, if you even get one nugget of nourishment today, you have fed us. And we lift up your name and we thank you for that feeding today, that strengthening that we so vitally need, Lord. Encourage the downcast, Father, in our midst. Father, help us to be sensitive to one another so that we might truly rejoice with those that rejoice, but we might weep with those that weep as well and befriend them in their times of need. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.